Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Uh, January 17th, as promised, um, more writers this year than last year. Um, and we've been teasing this for a few weeks. We had some scheduling mishaps and stuff. But tonight, we're going to be joined by Seth Harwood. We're not even calling this an interview, although I'm sure we're going to ask him some questions. It's going to be a – we don't have a name for this yet. But I'm thinking like a night with Seth Harwood. Or something less creepy, like a conversation <laughs> with Seth Harwood. But we, we're, we'll figure that out later. Here's some of what you need to know, and I'm on the fly <laughs> editing from Seth Harwood's bio. Seth Harwood is the author of many, many books, including Everyone Pays, In Broad Daylight, This Is Life, and Young Junius. He has a couple of collections. He currently lives in Western Massachusetts, and he teaches creative writing sometimes. Which is not accurate anymore. Am I correct? You still, Seth? Let's just talk here. Let's just talk. <laughs> here I am. Hello. You're no longer in San Francisco. Thanks for having me on. I'm not yeah, in San Francisco, but I'm teaching creative writing still. I'm teaching online for Harvard Extension, Stanford Continuing Studies, and coming up Lit Reactor with our friend Rob Hart. All right. So I'm going to ask, what is Harvard Extension? Harvard Extension is. Extension school at Harvard. It's like continuing studies at Harvard. Holy and they shit, have dude. online so classes. Technically I, like a Harvard professor? Yeah, no doubt. Lead it's with true. That. You should lead with that over everything else that I said. No joke. Yeah. Just last week, someone threw uh, in my direction um, a link to uh, certification through the Har- like Harvard Extension um, that I might be looking at getting. So it's funny that that, that comes up. Yeah, there it is. I have students who are getting actual degrees from Harvard, graduate and undergraduate, taking my classes. And I, and I have a four-paragraph bio. What is wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> so, you, did, you, did, you didn't take a Harvard extension class on short short bios. No. Rob and I have, have been critiquing bios for goddamn probably six years now. Oh, and Why don't you guys publicly. write bios? You guys could make some money on the side editing author bios. Oh, yeah. But see, it would. So, all right. So, again, here, let's. Uh, Rob, you, yeah. you're better at this than I am. Write Seth Harwood a new bio just right now. Go ahead. I, I know you can oh. do this. <laughs> is that going to be a part Not of the episode? Now? Uh, this, is kind of, this is personal <laughs> stuff. Here. Um, whoa. Oh, I got it. You ready for this? I got it. Yeah. <clears throat> Seth Harwood was published in the booked anthology and Perfect. he lives in go. Massachusetts. Yeah. Done. Seth, no charge, buddy. That's all yours. <laughs> it's true. I was published in the booked anthology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have a professor who was published Seth in the booked Harwood anthology. Seth Harwood teaches at Harvard. Just leave with that. Seth Harwood teaches at Harvard <laughs> and was published in the booked anthology. He has also written a short story called Snake Eyes in the Sinaloa Affair. That's so we're going to get into that because I'm so excited totally about <laughs> talking about your Kindle Worlds experiences. Take that, Don Winslow. Yeah, Don Winslow. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's start. Uh, let's start here. Let's start with the Maltese Jordans. So currently, you're serializing this through your Patreon. Can I just say one thing before we you, go into absolutely. that? Absolutely. I have to say. So I'm on my Amazon page, which a writer should never do, of course. But I just have to say, I wrote this thing called Snake Eyes in the Sinaloa Affair. It was G.I. Joe, <laughs> Kindle World. And if you go on Amazon and look at my Kindle, my options, 
you'll see the cover work for Snake Eyes in the Sinaloa Affair. It gave me this giant list of G.I. Joe cover pictures that I could choose from. And the one that I chose has G.I. Joe characters in a inflatable raft, and there's a helicopter pulling <laughs> off a giant squid in a net. Yeah. And no one has – it's been on Amazon for years. No one has ever put me on that. I think that's like the best cover art that any short story could ever have. And the G.I. Joes are just like – the Joes are just like – check. there's a Joe like looking at his watch. They're totally nonplussed by the fact that there's a giant squid in a net getting hauled off by a helicopter. This is a big squid. It's, yeah, it's it's bigger than the helicopter. I'm looking at it right now. I I have this, and I and I've never even noticed, like in my Kindle app or whatever. I've never noticed the giant squid. <laughs> so, well, that's the interesting thing. Have you noticed that if you buy a Kindle book, when you um when you select it, it takes you to the first readable page. Right, by it skips readable, the I mean, cover. It skips the cover. It skips the copyright date and all that, and it takes you to essentially the first chapter. Yeah, it'll even skip like the um, the front stuff, like the yeah. uh, uh, whatever those inscriptions that go in the beginning, or yep. the what do you call those? I think front stuff is the actual term. Front, I think front matter is is front actually matter. Right, yeah. But also the little quotes there have a special name that I should know. I think that what this tells you is that Amazon has figured out that we don't care about any of that shit. But I go back, actually. I go back to see if there's any interesting uh, epigraphs, is what they're called at the beginning, mm-hmm. to see if there's any interesting quotes. Because I'm curious about that. I also want to see the table of contents. And then I'm always curious what the cover looks like on a Kindle. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Kindle readers of Snake Eyes in the Sinaloa <laughs> Affair are missing out on an opportunity to feast their eyes on this awesome <laughs> cover art. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like I'm there's like... Be- it's one step short of a mermaid riding on a ski doo like across the horizon. It's true. That is, that is, yeah, you're right about that. I think I'm going to retract my first question. <laughs> and we're going to talk about Kindle worlds because now listeners know, and knowing is half the battle. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I have to right say that the, the the yes, I think we all pick. I think we all got it. the The cover for your GI Joe one is a little more scintillating than the one for. Uh, as much protein as an egg, <laughs> which is literally an egg. Like that's yeah, the entire cover. That that's great. No, yeah, I love that's it. Great. It's wonderful. You could just tell by looking at the egg how much protein is involved. Yeah. <laughs> just that much. Yeah, you exactly. went two completely different directions for Kindle Worlds, right? So a, a, a book written in the world of Kurt Vonnegut, and a and, and a and a story written in the world of a cartoon, right? And I'm not saying that to be judgmental because I grew up on the G.I. Joe cartoon and I love it. Well, also uh, a comic book. I yes. was reading the G.I. Joe comic book when I was a kid and I was okay. big into the toys. That's sure. why. Yeah. So did you, I, I think you and I are roughly the same age. You were on the four inch G.I. Joe's, right? Not the like super oh, tall yeah. ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah absolutely. Grip, motherfucker. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I, when that first came out, I had the G.I. Joes without the Kung Fu grip. And then mm-hmm. they came in with the Kung Fu grip. That was big. Yeah. And then later on, didn't they have like a forearm thing? I can't remember. Uh, I believe so. I, I was also that kid, though, that had all the custom G.I. Joes, meaning that I would take them apart and mix body parts. Whoa. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, yeah you unscrew their you unscrew their back. To mess with that rubber band inside. Yep. I didn't yeah. like to mess with the yeah. rubber band. Once you got it down, it wasn't that difficult. You were no. always tempting fate with that rubber band, though. Yeah. 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 But I was that kid that had to tear them all up, and uh, I had the whole original. So the first, the first grouping that came out, I think, if I remember correctly, was eight or twelve of them, um, and I had all of them. Yeah. Uh, of course, like I said, they were they were well they were well played with. I mean, scratched and and body parts, which is stuff I can only imagine with that collection. That's now in halfway decent shape. Right, uh, twelve, thirteen bucks. I'm guessing at least, like at least. I just buy lots of it on eBay at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was how I would know. Yeah, so like if I had a character that I really liked, my favorites were Seal and Snake Eyes because they were like most in the early Joes. They didn't have a lot of ninja options, mm-hmm. so I felt like Seal and Snake Eyes were the most ninja-like in their costumes. So I really gravitated towards them, and those were the ones that I played with so much that the um, rubber band would break, and then you would either have to like jerry rig a household rubber band and wrap it around enough time so that the thing would hold together or you had to go get a new one. So I wasn't into messing with the rubber band. I'm with you. Cause those are the two that wore masks and they were the only two from like the original run. But then when Zartan came out, it's like a game changer. The guy had no shirt on. You took him out in the sunlight. Like he changed colors. Like I thought that was a, a crowning achievement for uh Mattel, right? That would have been Mattel. I was more of a Destro Hasbro? guy. Hasbro. Hasbro. Yeah, yeah. I was more of a Destro guy. Destro was like pimped out, amulet around his neck, shirt wide open to show the chest. And the fact that he always had that metal thing on his head, like that is, yeah, you got to be crazy to wear a metal thing on your head like that. Have either one of you guys seen the G.I. Joe movies? No. Um, I saw, yes, I saw the first one. You're talking about, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, recently, right? Bruce they like Willis Joseph Gordon-Levitt yeah. in it or Bruce something Willis like that. was in that? He was in, I think it was the second one. He was in the one. second one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah we've gone, gone way off the rails already. This is <laughs> this was kind of the plan, I think. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to reel it back in by going to this. So when I was a kid, I had like a whole area where I had the G.I. Joe stuff and I had the base and like various planes and stuff like that. And I would concoct little stories that featured like massive like adventures of certain Joes that were my favorite. And I think that on some level, like concocting those stories, I would be doing that and like working it all out in my head. And then I'd get to the end and think like that was a really good story that I think other people would have enjoyed if they had seen the way that fight turned out. Oh my God. They would have (laughs) liked that. That was really cool. The way that seal like turned it around at the end, look at those spinning leg kicks. And so, um, I felt like, I feel like that was kind of a precursor to the whole writing thing. You know, with writing, you often have this feeling or maybe early in writing, people have the feeling of, you know, I wish that I would have been able to write that down like that was really good. And sometimes that's kind of a precursor for getting people to write um, or you'll wake up and have a dream and feel like, oh, that dream was such a crazy story. I need to write it all down. When I'm working with young writers or new writers in my classes, often what they're getting into is or where they're coming from is this idea that they have this story that they want to tell. And it's like, I've got this whole idea for a story. I just want to sit down and write it. And I feel like as you go further and further into 
writing as a career or a vocation or whatever you call it, um, you sort of write through most of that stuff and it just becomes kind of the process of writing is where the stories come from. And that, that's sort of a game changer, but it all goes back to the GI Joe and like, yeah, that was a really cool adventure that snake eyes had when he had to go up against Zartan in the woods. There was actually the couch in my living room. (laughs) Um, and so I wish that I would have written that down. And then you get older and you sort of develop the ability to write this down and then you're creating your own stories. And so then that was what led me to try to write. I mean, basically the Sinaloa affair is like basically Snake Eyes killing El Chapo in like 20 pages with some swords and stuff. Uh, and so it's like what Don Winslow does over um, 800 pages and counting when the next book comes out. <laughs> So really what you're saying is you could do it more efficiently than Don Winslow. Well, I'm saying that I could do it with little to no research and so have like very little veracity. But Snake Eyes doing some cool air dodges of bullets and chopping a whole bunch of people up. Yeah, there's merit to that. You know, it's interesting that you say that, too, because I, I've never really thought about that. So um, I, I think we all, maybe except Rob, because I don't know if Rob was ever actually a child, um, did the same things, right? Like, yeah, your little action figures and you make up stories and stuff. But I guess for a writer, that's probably like the earliest, the, the earliest version of that, right? I mean, that's that's an interesting thought. I, I've never really, really thought about it that way. When I was a kid, someone gave me a journal. And it was just like this book with a cover on it. And, and I tried to write some stories and I saw that people were selling books and like making money on it. And I was like, oh, man, I want to write. And I wrote some story about this guy who had like an alien that lived behind his barn or something. And so that was when I was really young. I started doing that. But there was that weird thing in my head that would always think when I was doing the Snake Eyes stories and making up those things. I would have this nagging feeling of like, I wish I would have recorded that. Do you guys relate to that? Do you ever have that? I wish I would have had a way to record or document that story because someone might have enjoyed it. I don't remember ever thinking that. Yeah, it's all right. So it's funny that you mentioned that because there, I was thinking a lot recently about um, how, uh, uh, you know, um, I think that. At every point, everybody thinks I'm going to write something, you know, to some degree or another. And, and obviously, I went through that myself and um, thankfully came to the conclusion that I'm better at critiquing writing than actually just doing it myself. Um, but and, and I on, on social media last night on Facebook, I put up a post about how everybody who says I should write a story about my life, I should write a book about my life actually shouldn't. Um, but they don't anyway. Well, they don't, but like, but there's, there's merit in taking it down in one way or another. So like, I've got, you know, a pile of little notebooks and stuff of like, you know, thoughts I've had over the years or, you know, experiences I've had in my life that while I don't ever want to see it as like a fiction book or an autobiography or anything like that, it's important to have it somewhere because I'm going to forget it. So like, to some degree, yes, like I totally identify and I, I kind of opened the door to that thought myself just yesterday. Um, it's definitely important to have a history of, of things that were significant in one way or another, whether you're a writer or not. Um, but I have to imagine that as a writer, 
or an author or whatever you want to call yourself, like that could be a gateway to like your GI Joe, your GI Joe stories. Well, the thing is, I mean, so there's this idea that like a life, if you if you're journaling, you're living a life considered, and so that makes your life more interesting to you or something, or it makes it more fully realized. Is that what you're talking about? In a way, um, I would say. It, for me, I think the benefit that you would gain from it is just um, upon reflection, you you understand things more clearly than if you yeah. don't reflect on something. Um, it's like a meditation. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like a meditation when you think on the things that you're ha- that are happening in your life. It's also sort of a meditative act to sit and write, whether you're writing about things that happened or just writing down words for words' sake. Mm-hmm. But. Um, the thing that's interesting is like at a certain so then there's the idea that the events of one's life are worth having other people read and I got rid of that like in my early 20s that was the first writer mistake that I made yeah. the first terrible terrible novel that I wrote <laughs> but probably you can relate to the fact where it's like you know that feeling when you let's say you've had an amazing day and you feel like you need to write about it and you're sort of getting tired and it's like Okay, all these things happened. I know I'm not doing justice to these ones, but I really want to write them better. And it just gets to the point where it's like it feels really like work to write down all the things that happened and try to do them justice. Do you feel that ever? Well, my reaction to that is I feel like you're you're talking about this outside the context of social media, which is where people dump all of their significant daily things now like in the in the modern day like if i have a particularly funny thought boom i post it up i wait for like the 25 likes i'm gonna get and i move on with my life yeah. <laughs> no but i'm talking about yeah i'm talking about definitely outside of social media and definitely in a longer form than you would see in social media like you know let's say you have a journal when i was in my 20s Right around 20, I did a semester abroad in London, and this friend of mine bought me a journal, and so I would write about all the things that I did, the art exhibits that I would see, the buses that I would ride on, the trains, the stores, all these different things. I would write about them, and it really was interesting to me because I was over there. I didn't have my old friends. I didn't really know people that much, and so I got to really get involved and engage with myself through this journal. Um but on some level, if you're so if you're doing that and you're trying to write down, say, the great day that you went to an amusement park, all the things that happened, it's hard to write that all down. Or if you wake up in the middle of the night and you have this amazing dream about breaking out of a prison with three other inmates and you had to have your legs tied together and you broke out of your handcuffs and you fought this anaconda, like by the time you're trying to write all this down, it's like it feels like a lot of work. So I guess where I'm going with all of this is that on one level, you move away from wanting – as a fiction writer, you move away from wanting to write about what actually happened to you. But then also you realize, for me anyway, the actual thing that makes the writing fun and makes you want to keep doing it when you're sitting there on the page is not that desire to like – get from point A to point Z that you already know or recount like the anaconda in the dream, having your legs tied up, getting through the big tunnel, like all those things that you already know, but writing into the places where you don't know and then just kind of having the story come out as you go. 
Yeah, I, that was my when I was listening to you guys talk about that. I had two thoughts. First of all, I've never once thought anything I did was exciting enough to write down. So, second, <laughs> I can so second I was that. Just feeling I, yeah, bad about myself. Really. It's a strong. Yeah. It's a good instinct. Follow that. Um, but no, that, that's what I was thinking. Is the difference for somebody who writes to tell stories is that I think part of that is in the discovery. And when you're when you know exactly what you're saying when you're um, you're writing, you're writing history. So it's the difference between being a fiction writer and creating a world or creating a story um, versus just like writing somebody's biography. Right? It's two very different um, two very different right. styles. Right. But I have to imagine it takes two very different people to be passionate about one recounting events, while one is creating events and discovering a story and a path to to the end of that story. Well, it's one thing to research like Abraham Lincoln and then go write his his life story. It's another thing to just write down everything that happens to you every day, and then yeah. either just do it and stick it on a shelf or do it. And think other people are going to want to read it. I mean, some people write like that. For sure. I, I, when I say no, it's a strong word. I am acquainted with at least four people who are currently in some stage of writing their life story. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, this, this is a thing that happens. For publication or just to have? I, I honestly don't know because I avoid them like the plague. Some but people want is, to write it to give to their grandkids. This is what happens. Yep. To not read. And this probably happens to Rob, too. <laughs> Someone says, hey, I'm writing this or you're, uh, you know, uh, I'm writing this thing. And, and someone says, oh, my friend Rob, he reviews books. You should totally talk to him. Yeah. 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 See yeah. the heavy side. <laughs> so and that probably happens to you, too. Right. Someone says, oh, they're writing a story. And they go, oh, I know this guy. He's awesome. His name's Seth Harwood. And he's published like eight books. And uh, you should totally give him what you've got or get some ideas from him or whatever. Oh. And then you've got to spend time dodging that person. Yeah. <laughs> one guy's one guy's book is is about his life, but it's really mostly about him fishing. I'm not making this up. That sounds so, good, actually. I like yeah. the fishing part. Yeah. The fishing yeah. angle. Go with that. I'm going to give him your phone number. Ah. Uh, <laughs> like, I know this, I know this writer. You can probably you can feel really... free to give him my Skype account because yeah. that. That largely goes unanswered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got lucky tonight then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we knew this was going in. But, um, yeah, so I think that was my first malfunction when I was a young child playing with G.I. Joes and thinking, wow, this is a story that I wish I had documented because other people would want it. My other early malfunction was thinking that I could write stories even back when I was a kid, I was thinking like, damn, I want to – people read mysteries and mystery writers make a lot of money. I want to try that. My dad published some books in anthropology and I was trying to convince him to write mysteries. <laughs> That's awesome. And he wouldn't do it. So I guess I grew up to do it. And he's like always been trying to convince me to do something much more, um, let's say, economically stable, responsible. Architecture, he thinks, would be a great idea for me. I, I talked to a young lady today who was nearly in tears because she paid $200 for a textbook on real estate law, maybe? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've never seen this happen. The glue was just coming undone. So, like, the first, like, 50 the pages were completely out of the book. Yeah. And, wow. and, and you could see where the top, like, third of the next maybe 50 pages were coming undone. And she's like, I paid 200 bucks for this book. So my guess, Seth, and I'm not making any judgments, anthropology may pay better in some cases. 
than uh than I thought you said the the book oh well no but I'm saying you're you're talking well, about anthropology <laughs> I think that uh, if you can write a textbook I think that that might be far more lucrative yeah. than uh than than writing mysteries well, thanks for this now. Hello. Yeah, yeah, no, listen, your dad Your dad tried to tell you, man. <laughs> we never listened to our parents. And see what happens? My parents told me I should go into medicine or law, and I did listen. And now here I am on this podcast with, like, a day job. Podcast. Yeah, there you are. Well, this is spun down into a whirlpool yeah. of yeah. negativity. <laughs> well, that's great. That's just great. I so, mean... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, keep reading. <laughs> That's it. That's the podcast. Well, keep reading my four paragraph bio is what yeah. is what it's really. I'm still about. I'm still trying to get to the end of it. So <laughs> yeah, you can't put a bookmark on Amazon. That's the uh, yeah. that's the problem. I've got five paragraphs. I'm looking at my Amazon page right now, and it's got five paragraphs. <laughs> it. But I will work on this. Thanks to you guys, I now have a new project to work on. Listen, speaking speaking of projects, I want to talk about the Maltese Jordans. I want to talk about the Maltese Jordans. So I I, I was uh, I was lucky enough to be able to listen to three episodes. So I don't know how many chapters that was. Yeah, I did absolutely. Holy smokes! Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you look, yeah, yeah. When you see those analytics, yeah, boom. Um, so this is kind of this is kind of interesting. So uh, Jack Palms, you have a number of of stories with him, and, and he's kind of uh, you know like a modern day detective. I think I'm maybe oversimplifying a little bit, right? But he 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 he's a bounty hunter who winds up solving um, mysteries, essentially, right? Am I, am I giving that a fair shake? This is like his first spin as a bounty hunter. Okay, so he's he's just kind of been a ne'er do well who sort of he winds up in all kinds of situations, but. Now he's bounty hunting, and not to give anything away. I think that I think that the title might a little bit. Uh, you cross that over with what I believe is another passion of yours, right? Which is gym shoes. Gym shoes. All he's right. a sneakerhead. You're a sneakerhead, right? Sneakers. Yeah, sneakers. Sneaker. Sorry. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. So this was a long. This was a long repressed <laughs> love that I had when I was in college. We would go to the mall just to look at like the new sneakers that were coming out, but I wouldn't buy that many. I always, you know, maybe you have like. I was even thinking about you guys at one point when you were hosting Crime Wave. You were like that. Seth Harwood. Rob said that Seth Harwood always has good shoes. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah. Anyway, so that was back in the days when I was repressing this whole thing and and keeping myself to a sane, like, let's say that at a given time I would have, like, two to four pairs of, like, ready-to-wear shoes in pretty good condition. Um, But in the sneakerhead world, people could have upwards of 80 pairs of expensive Jordans in either mint condition, which they call dead stock, or, you know, basically any condition. Um, and that's not weird. And so from the people <laughs> that I come from, of course, that's completely crazy. Uh, but yeah, so I started to go down the path of really writing into this Jordan sneakerhead world. And, um, you know, I had to do my due diligence and research. So I really started looking into the markets and what Nike is releasing at a given time. And the really exciting thing for me is that all the sneakers that were coming out when I was in high school and that I coveted and wasn't able to buy, 
are basically being re-released regularly now from Nike and through all kinds of secondary markets. You can buy them. And uh, I'm able to get now the sneakers that I wanted way back when I was like a nerd in somebody's biology class. And so they're here now. And now, I, yeah, I'm researching, I'm buying, I'm doing really hard research to get certain Jordans and check it all out. And I've dove, I have dove divin into that world of sneakerheads, which is, is quite a world. I'm sure that you guys being in Chicago have come into it a bit, it, depending on where you live in this country. In San Francisco and the Bay Area, it's a big thing. New York City, it's a really big thing. Uh, where I am now in Western Mass, it's a zero thing. <laughs> but I would imagine that in Chicago, there's a pretty legit sneaker culture, particularly around Jordan and Jordans. There's. I know. To think if I've. I don't a, think I've ever referred to them as sneakers in my life. That might be a regional thing. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's that's what I was wondering because I, I I hear the term and, and I was thinking, have I ever used the word sneakers before? And I was like, I don't know that I have. Gym um, shoes. Gym shoes. That's what I've been calling them my whole life. <laughs> what do you? Would you wear? You don't wear sneakers. I'm guessing. Well, well no, because I wear gym shoes. <laughs> you have a pair of like beat up old sneakers. <laughs> so yeah. So no, I, I actually I wear a pair of Reeboks currently almost every day to work. Like just a pair of black Reeboks. Yeah. But I, I think of them as gym shoes. They probably are gym shoes. I think you're right to think of those as gym shoes. Yeah. Well, other people will call them tennis shoes, and it's like, you're not playing tennis. Yeah, yeah that's always been weird to me. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Andre Agassiz or Yvonne Lendl's. Ooh, pulling out the Lendl name. This guy knows his tennis. Um, well, no, I know my sneakers. Lendl, uh, totally. There were, there were Lendl Adidas that were pretty awesome. Stan Smith's. I mean, Adidas, people have been wearing the um, the tennis shoes forever from guys that they don't even know who they are. I had a pair of Rod Lavers a lot. When I was first doing the Jack Palm stuff, I had a couple pairs of Rod Lavers because Mad Villain makes reference to them in a song. And it's like, you know, that's a tennis guy from a million years ago. Interesting. I I don't want to get too far away from the shoe thing. But um, so I'm going to let's do an exercise. Rob, if you were drinking a can of Coke, what would you refer to that substance that's inside? Oh, yeah, it's pop. It's pop. See, Seth? Yeah. Soda, obs. See, and I've been saying soda forever, and I know that everyone around me says pop. Yeah, pop is a is a Midwestern thing for sure. Um, I know, but I've never heard this gym shoes thing. I get a lot of the tennis shoes, but I don't think if you found someone in <laughs> Chicago that had Jordans, they would not call them gym shoes. No, they call them sneakers. Um, yeah. I I had this I can't remember I had this conversation about the the different names you can call shoes with someone recently and I realized that I always just called shoes shoes. I never even went into like a specific like style. Like my Chuck Taylors that I wear every day, I call shoes. Um if you if you were wearing sneakers, I'd be like, oh those are his shoes. I just say shoes. Yeah, I think that's okay. I'm alright with that. Yeah. But so. I think but then there's like if you see someone rocking some nice Jordans, I think the popular lingo would be to say something like, oh nice Jays or you could call them out by the number model they are, or you could say nice kicks. Kicks, I use. I do use the word kicks. Hey, um, I can't remember. I really wish I remembered the name of like the the person, but there's a dude, I guess, that's doing like these really limited edition shoes, and this guy that I work with, um, 
had he was aware of these the thing that brought him to my attention was and hopefully you can kind of shed some light on this it, he he had the he was wearing these shoes and they looked nice and everything and he just got them and there was this red plastic tag like Yeezys is that what it is wait go ahead um like it, with like it looked like a little zip tie kind of like red plastic yeah, yeah. and and it, it it's apparently that's how you know it it's this dude's design or whatever yeah, I think that's called off white. All right. Yeah, I don't know, but like this guy was super excited that he 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 got he had a couple pair by the same guy, and you see these like this weird little like it looked like you zip tied a little plastic like luggage tag almost, but like it's yeah. flat plastic. Yeah. Yeah, I saw a kid wearing those. If you want to see good sneakers, just go on a plane. Like, and so I saw a kid wearing that <laughs> on an airplane, and I think that Nike. It's possible. I don't know. Nike did a thing that was um, maybe his name is Virgil Abloh, but I think he's called his sneakers are called Off White, and they did one anyway. Yeah, maybe. So your friend has those. Yeah, yeah, he has. Yeah, he just got them like I a couple at, weeks ago. I was at an Athleta in San Francisco, and the guy who works at Athleta in San Francisco was wearing the Kanye West sneakers, which are called Yeezys. Oh, and right those on. Things Go for like three hundred and fifty dollars retail, but you can't even buy them. You have to buy a robot to like <laughs> break into the website so that you can buy them, or else you have to buy them on the secondary market for like a hundred, hundred, several hundred dollar markup. It's wow. crazy. So, no, for listeners, everything guys, Seth Harwood yeah. said was true. Um, the name and, and everything. I, I did look him up by the red zip tie. And have just scrolled through an article, but yes, you were right. Virgil Abloh, A B L O H, yeah, um, and White. yeah, they're uh, they're pretty. They're pretty shoes. Just go to High Snowbriety, and they'll have everything that you need on that website. But there's a lot of things going on with um, sneakers and one-offs or one-of-a-kinds. There's this Italian company that made um, you can't copyright the the appearance of a shoe. So this Italian company made these hand-stitched, all-leather, like, basically redos of these Jordans. I can't remember the name of them. It's a weird name, but they're, like, more than $1,000 retail. That's crazy. I've always had some concerns about hand-stitching because I fully trust a machine to stitch something better than than the person who's doing it. Yeah, but if someone could give you some handmade Italian shoes, would you not go crazy over that? I yeah, um, I, yeah, maybe. I, I'm, I'm just this kid, I've never been there was a kid shoes. that had these. Con- the last sneakers that Kanye West did for Nike were called Red Octobers, and um, this one kid had a pair of them signed by Kanye, and they, he was at a sneaker convention in New York City. Someone offered him ninety six thousand dollars for them. And he didn't sell them. <laughs> that kid is an idiot. Yeah, I'm like I'm liable to agree with that. I, it's Let interesting read. though that Kanye West. So you know Michael Jordan and Andre Agassi and, and and basically a lot of the names we've heard, right? Chuck Taylor. Those those were all athletes. So I, I feel like their endorsement of a sneaker um, has has more weight to it than Kanye West. What about the Run DMC Adidas? Oh man, those were big. <laughs> They were big, actually. <laughs> you just walk. You I remember wanting those when I was a kid. They yeah. took an Adidas style that was already there, the Shelto, 
<clears throat> and then they made them run DMC ones. But nowadays you got like Pharrell Williams is designing sneakers. Um, what's his name? Kendrick Lamar just came out with some Nikes. Mm. Missy Elliott had some Adidas. All kinds of stuff is going on. I was recording a thing from the Maltese Jordans today for my podcast, which I am doing on Patreon. And um, can I read you guys a quick piece of it? Please. So Jack Palms and this other guy are in this Jeep driving, and they're talking about the, the Jordans. And then this girl says, when are you two going to quit talking about tennis shoes? Sneakers, I said. And then this guy Modi said, Nobody talking nobody talking about tennis shoes here, sweetheart. These just kicks, baby. No Lendl's, no Stan Smith's, no Andre Agassi joints. There it is. That's all, that's all I got. It's uh, great. Yeah. It's great. Everything I know about uh, sneaker collections I learned from um, from DJ Khaled. So when I was listening to that first <laughs> that first section of the Maltese Jordans, I was picturing that that's the house he's in, in DJ Khaled's um, shoe closet. <laughs> There's crazy videos on YouTube of so many people's shoe closets, and most of them are athletes and entertainers, and their shoe closets are bonkers, berserk. It's crazy. And then they'll go shopping with these people. Someone just forwarded me a video of Macklemore shoe shopping with Complex. And he bought like thousand dollars worth of shoes for basically three pairs. Well, two of them were kids' shoes, baby shoes, two wow. for a thousand. But the crazy thing is, the kids these days are buying. There's way more money being spent these days right now on Jordan sneakers that were made that were originally designed before like 1998 than kids are buying all the top basketball players sneakers combined so like lebron kobe kd kyrie steph curry all those guys sneaker sales combined are way less than what kids are still paying annually on jordan sneakers so to clarify is that new jordans or like old like are they like reissued or are they like the original ones that they're buying that came out a long time ago they're not buying the original ones okay. that came out. I'm go. Those those get hard, and the the they're just, oh, okay. they just. It's don't... nice to think of those being great, but they don't stand up that well, even if they've been preserved. But these are reissues called retros of all the Jordans, and now they have new colorways that they've designed, and so they'll release like the old Jordans from 1996 in all kinds of new colorways all the time. Every Saturday, there's a new retro jordan release and for the most part they sell out like immediately unless they're <laughs> ugly Jesus. oh nike it's great wow i know somebody who's at high school who i believe spends all of her part-time job money on those jordan re-releases it, it seems to me that there is a a new pair every few weeks well i know people I know this guy who was one of my students a long time ago, and now we're friends. He has upwards of eighty pairs. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. And some, and periodically he'll sell them off and stuff, sell some of them off. But he has ones that he like waited in line for and spent like four hundred dollars for, never wore. Maybe someday will sell. Probably won't. 
<laughs> I have a pair. I am. I mean, I have pairs that I haven't worn, and maybe I'll wear them someday, or maybe I'll just sell them. I sold a whole bunch of them last year. My wife thinks I'm crazy to have all these <laughs> pairs, but at this point, I still have less than 10 pairs. So that doesn't seem too crazy, given what else is out there. But my thought about your my thought about your friend periodically selling his it's when his wife realizes that he's bought more yeah. that he has yeah. to sell <laughs> shoes. Yeah. So. so, but I can't I can't point a finger at that obsessive collector mentality. Uh, I think we all have something right that we. Some people buy yeah. record albums. Some people buy books. Yeah, mine is beer and bourbon. Yeah, yeah, I spent. A good, a considerable amount of my most recent paycheck on beer last weekend, uh, <laughs> an obscene amount of of money on on beer. Um, but I do drink it all. I don't I immediately don't immediately no. upon buying. Or no, 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 no. Like I, I, I have a nice You're like a connoisseur. But like I, I'm at the point where like I have to seriously rearrange the bottles in my kitchen when I when I buy groceries because there's more room spent on my alcohol than there is on where the food goes. So I can't, I could never c- criticize someone for their, their collecting habits. Well, let me Uh-oh. just, let me just put an idea in your head. You move out of the city, you get a bigger house for less money. And then in your basement, you get a fridge just dedicated to beer. Um, well, I, I actually live in I, your man cave where you put two TVs <laughs> And a leather couch. I like the way you think. I could I could go for a bigger place and really put I'm just saying, I've seen this. Once I left San Francisco, this was one of the first things that I saw was a guy <laughs> with a, a fridge dedicated to beer in his basement yeah. with, like, all glasses in the freezer and the whole fridge full of beer. I want to I want to explain to Rob that... Um, what Seth was talking about, the sneakers, those people are called collectors. When people spend yeah. most of their paychecks on alcohol, they're called alcoholics. There's <laughs> a slight difference between what happens there. It's true. Semantics, right? It is a I mean, quickly downward slope. That was that is really the low-hanging fruit. That's not the first time Livius has accused me of being an alcoholic. Well, everybody's got their thing, you know, people... Anyway, the thing is, if you're walking around San Francisco, you're much more likely to bump into someone who looks completely any number of different ways and happens to have crazy sneaker fetish collection or works wherever uh, than you are in some other places. But the, the sneakerhead phenomenon is huge. And so I got really into it. I started researching this phenomenon and, and finding out that it's, it's a big thing. There was this guy named um, Bobito Garcia who started writing a column in Slam magazine probably 20 years ago called confessions of a sneaker addict. And that became a super popular, um, a really popular column and people were all about it. And he has gone on to do a lot of really interesting things, but, um, you know, the sneaker thing is really big. And so when I started writing this at first, they were chasing after the, or so Jack Palms is chasing after this guy who has committed a crime in San Francisco and skipped bail. He's got to go find him. The guy's in Hawaii. And then it turns out that he's gone there to track down this pair of Jordans that it's kind of like romancing the stone where they're like chasing after this thing. (laughs) 
except here it's like this pair of Jordans that this guy has cooked up this crazy, totally unreal story about. And so he calls them the Maltese Jordans in deference to Hammett and all that craziness. Um, the, the, Which like episode? Did you just listen to the first three episodes? I listened to the first three, yes. So they got to Hawaii. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's funny, I think, for for readers, but Palms has hooked up with a young lady. Yeah, yeah. And and now he's taken Modi, right? M-O-D-I? Is that what yeah, you're saying? Modi. Yeah, Modi. Um, he, has, uh, he has captured Modi, essentially, and oh, is holding really? him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You're into it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I listened to I listened to quite a bit of it. <laughs> so once he gets with Modi, then Modi spins out the whole story of the Jordans, and for me, like that's where it gets really exciting. Mm-hmm. And now Jack is starting to learn about what the sneaker culture is, and ultimately, he's they they go after the Jordans. I, I'll, Jack I'll, gets talked into pursuing the Jordans. I'll tell you that on its on its face, it does not sound like something I would enjoy, to be just really honest. <laughs> but what I've listened to is pretty fascinating because it, it does dig into a subculture that's something I'm not terribly familiar with. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I learned a little bit um, through through the little bit that I listened. And as Rob knows, the only way I learn things is through reading fiction, which is probably a really bad way to live my life. It's pretty bad. But, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by the Maltese Jordans. So, yeah, there you go. So, I should get you a little. Somehow, I can get you sort of a back end Patreon thing if you want to put it in your uh, Apple Podcasts app. If you have that, um, I do on my iPad. Well, we'll, we'll we can figure something out. I got. I yeah, got this. we'll get you in. Or you so, could contribute three bucks, and then you'll yeah, get all the episodes you could ever want. There is that too. That's what I was thinking. That's the other way we could probably take care of that. Do you want to? Do you want to plug your? This is a perfect time to tell the listeners oh, how, yeah. how they can uh, get get onto this Maltese Maltese Jordans train. So, as listeners of Booked know, there is this thing out there called Patreon, which some of us are experimenting with and are really finding out about do you guys know mike bennett Mm, doesn't sound familiar Mm. so mike bennett was doing podcasts so i started podcasting way back when even before you guys in 2006 i was podcasting my books as serialized audiobooks when i was finishing my first book around 2007 mike bennett started podcasting and he never stopped and so he's on patreon he's doing really well with it he does like really long vampire style books. Uh, and so he convinced me to come over and give it a try. So I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. I'm re-releasing old content there. Um, short stories under the long way from Disney title, uh, Jack Palms adventures in the Maltese Jordans. And pretty soon I'm going to be putting out, um, one of my mysteries that came out from Thomas and Mercer called in broad daylight, uh, which features a female FBI agent uh, going after a serial killer in Alaska. But the main thing that I'm putting out there is the Maltese Jordans, which we've been talking about. It's at patreon.com slash Seth Harwood, and the rewards go from $1 up, and you only have to be at the $3 reward level uh, to get all the Maltese Jordans content. When the new episodes come out, you get them, you listen, 
and I'm working on putting them out as frequently as possible. And if I can get uh, Livius to go for that three bucks thing, it must be pretty good, right? Yeah, he's kind of a really, tight one. I'm, I'm, in with some things. Yes, I'm kind of a tight one. <laughs> that's uh, that is true. That being <laughs> said, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So, um, I, I suggest that people go check it out. I do believe so, Seth. You have the distinction of being one of the only authors we've ever had on who regularly updates his website. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, on your website there is still the first section of that, and I think it's a couple of chapters is available for free for people to check out. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, great point. So on my website, SethHarwood.com, there's a video. I'm also doing some teaching stuff. So like at the end of the month, I'm doing these office hour talks with some of my students where we talk about craft of fiction and different things. So I just did a talk about verbs, which is on my website. It's like five minutes long video. I think you might really like that. But anyway, uh, so the first chapters of the Maltese Jordan are free on my website, SethHarwood.com, as is a re-podcast of my Southern Gothic-style story, To the Bone, which was originally featured in... The Book Danthology. Boom, and that's an awesome story. That is a great story. Mm -hmm. That's the story that got me reading the Faulkner stuff that we were talking about before. But just to finish the thought, on my website, a little bit further down, uh, the Maltese Jordans Chapter 1 is there free. Uh, And actually, on my Patreon page... Um, the whole first episode, which is three chapters, is free uh, of the Maltese Jordans over there on Patreon. And pretty soon what's going to happen, maybe even this week, uh, the whole first episode will be free on my website at SethHarwood.com. And episode two will go free on Patreon. So if you want to get those and try it out, you can head to my website and my Patreon. That's awesome. You're writing this on the fly. Is that did I catch that right? You're no, I've done of... that before. Okay, uh, but with the Maltese Jordans, it's all done. Okay. Um, basically, I had this novel in a drawer, and I loved it. Uh, my editors at Thomas and Mercer didn't want to buy it because of the sneakerhead niche aspect of it, and the fact that the main character is a guy, and um, <laughs> so I kind of shelved it. And Sexist. then I gave it to a friend of mine uh, and he's like, this is the shit. This is like the best fucking thing I've read in three years. You have to do something with this. So I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, my faith in the publishing industry as a whole is not super high. And so it turned out that around that time was when Mike Bennett started pitching the Patreon idea to me. So I figured, shit, I'll start doing the the recordings again i can get a mic set up and start recording the audio and so i started recording the maltese jordans and um yeah i've been putting it out that way and really enjoying it i mean this is like a book that i really like and kind of a passion project for me so i think i'll just finish it out on audio and then just find a way to um self-publish it myself for the people who want it so you've been so you've been doing this for a long time, and and I think, um, and and I I don't I mean you're the first person I I had heard of that was serializing audio, 
um, books through podcasts. So audiobooks have been around. I mean, I remember you know going out and getting tapes from the library 25 yeah, years I used ago. Yeah, I do or that too. It's, I would get tapes and CDs. Mm-hmm. But you were doing serialized podcasts for fiction before it was a thing. So nowadays you can't, you know, you can't open up your podcast app without, you know, finding, you know, 50 different fiction um, stories that are serialized every couple of weeks and stuff. And you were doing this pretty early on. Yeah. Do, do you do you are, are you do you listen to anything that's serialized now? I mean, any of the newer and I know it's been going on for a few years now. So I'm saying new, but I mean, over the course of the last five years, there's been kind of an explosion of serialized fiction in podcasts. Yeah. What do you what do you think about, you know, from when you were when you were doing you said 2006, I believe. Right. So you know, 12 years ago um, yeah. to now. What, what, what do you see in, in serialized podcasts and, and how do you feel about the current batch? Well, it kind of exploded with serial like serial had. I mean, one of the things that was obvious back then was that like so we there was a website called Podio Books and there was kind of a handful of us putting out serialized fiction. And, you know, a lot of it was skewing towards science fiction and fantasy, like as as with most things, those guys are the early adopters for tech. So um, yeah. that's where the real audience was. And so I was the first one and the only one to be doing mystery and crime fiction for a long time. Uh, and, you know, I basically did it from 2006 until 2011. And along the way I got published with Random House. I published with Tyrus books. I did Kickstarter. I did some releases on my own, all kinds of different things. And I was working sort of closer and closer to a straight serialization model where I would be writing the book as I was releasing it as audio. And then I would release it in text after. Um, and it's at several points along the way, I figured like, this is the point where I can let go of doing all this promotion myself and just, um, just let a publisher take over and do all the promotion. Um, and so at a certain point I, I figured, you know, I had a kid, I just couldn't put in the time anymore to do all the podcasting. So I let it go. And, um, Thomas and Mercer published in broad daylight in 2013. They did really well with that one. Uh, and then the landscape further continued to shift and evolve. Um, a lot of things have changed, but you know, so in the podcasting world, as I stepped away from it, some things really blossomed over there, starting with serial. Um, and so one of the things that we would say that seemed apparent to me back in the days when we were starting, it was that we were out there sort of pushing it and saying, you know, this is how you listen to a podcast. This is how you get an, a podcast on iTunes. And then you could actually stream them on your phone, which was kind of earth shattering rather than downloading them to iTunes and playing them. Um, you know, this was before there were even iPhones, so you couldn't stream these things. You had to download it on your computer, sync it onto your iPad and then or your iPod and then go listen to it. Um, and that's where a lot of the early stuff was happening, but it was even obvious back then that like ESPN and NPR, they would introduce a larger audience to podcasting and iTunes and Apple. So I was just feeling like if we could hang around, you know, podcasting would get bigger and people would find us. But of course, the first ones that they found were these NPR ones. So, you know, like Serial and Fresh Air or whatever people are listening to. I really always used to listen to PTI on ESPN for whatever reason. I just like those guys. But um, yeah, Serial blew up. And then you've got things like S-Town, Serial Season 2. 
Um, now you've got Gimlet Media, who's like producing all this podcast content. Back when we were doing it, it was just like one guy and a microphone. And then people who were listeners would decide to help out and do like some audio editing for us or help us with our websites. Um, but now you've got whole crews and actors coming in. I listened to on Gimlet, uh, the one about the soldiers. Um, I forget what it's called. But people come along and they say, hey, have you listened to this podcast or that podcast? And, uh, you know, I've listened to some of them. I find them entertaining. Um, there's one called Crime Town now. Mogul I thought was interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to think of them. But it's interesting how, like you were saying about, um, oh, Homecoming is the one on, on Gimlet that I listened to. And this is one where, like, several writers are getting paid to write it, sort of like a TV show. And then they've got Catherine Keener, Oscar Isaac, and David Schwimmer doing voices on it. And, you know, people are really getting paid to do this. So to me, to see that, yeah. it's kind of amazing. And it's sort of like what you were saying, or it's sort of like with Netflix or Apple or any of these guys who are sort of mining content um, to make they're – make, they're just looking to put out content for their listeners or their viewers or whatever. And so now people are getting paid to make these podcasts. It's kind of amazing. And I'm still over here, like writing my funky novels <laughs> and like dealing with Kindles and, um, you know, dead tree versions. And it's kind of like, what the fuck? What, what am <laughs> yeah. I doing over here? But luckily I have guys like you that are also committed to, working with uh, antiquated forms of <laughs> yeah. entertainment. <laughs> yeah. I got two things to say about that. Um, first of all, like when, whenever for, for that period of time where serial was still kind of the first season was in the works or, or being released people who discovered that I was, that I did a, my own podcast. Oh, you do a podcast. You'd love serial because it's the yeah. only podcast they'd ever heard of. And I was like, Fuck you. And then the other thing is... Um, or it's like they come out and they're like, have you heard... There's this thing, yeah. Serial? It's a, it's a podcast. Yeah. Have you ever heard of podcasts? <laughs> so, yeah, there's that little have. bitterness. But sure. then, like, if like the production value, uh, you, like you were saying, the talent that they're bringing in and they're paying for, the production value of things is it has got to be night and day different than when you were doing things because, like, uh, I mean, if you listen to, like, Welcome to Night Vale... And stuff like that, you know, like, I don't know if that's a, the best example, because I don't think they do a lot of, like, sound effects and stuff. But, like, you have, like, really um, professionally produced, like, sound uh, included in, in podcasts now, which I feel like is, yeah. is, uh, it is a growing kind of trend. Well, the other thing that's interesting for me is, like, you know, as we were – so as we were creating these serialized audiobooks what we wanted to do back then also was put them into the iTunes store so that people could buy them as audiobooks. And so now you have the option to put your own audiobooks on Audible and iTunes through ACX. And so the question is, you know, what level of production are we looking for on that level? You could go all the way to the top and have fancy engineers and pay fancy actors to do a book or you know, if I'm just putting my audiobooks on Audible, you know, what does that look like? So there's a lot of questions with podcasting and audiobooks, and it's all switching because uh, 
you know, it's easier for people to consume this kind of media through a device that we carry around all the time while we are doing other things with our eyeballs or driving or folding laundry or cooking or riding the subway. You know, it's much easier to consume than books. We can also consume it with others. So, you know, it seems like there's so much that's going that direction. And then it's all just, you know, you try to just sort of be a part of it, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, my one thought on, on um, so I, I've, I've dabbled in, there's a few podcasts I've listened to, um, serialized podcasts, like season one of Alice Isn't Dead. I absolutely loved it. I've listened to it twice. I, I just realized the season two came out a few months ago, so I'm going to get that on my list of things to do. Um, what is that? Uh, Alice Isn't Dead. It's a uh, it's the it's, the Night Vale people. It's like their side project. Joseph Fink, I think, from Welcome yeah. to Night Vale. Yeah. Yep. I've never even heard of Welcome to Night Vale. Oh, Welcome oh, to Night. Yeah. That, that's <laughs> so. Um, at the time, um, they so. What's the other one called? Alice isn't dead, and they're two very different types of of um of podcasts. So, Welcome to Night Vale takes place in a fictional town. Where every conspiracy theory you've ever heard is true, mm. um, so it's it's very tongue in cheek, um, very funny, um, very all, popular. Yes, they had but it's all over it's ten all million downloads. <laughs> there, there you go, yeah, over ten million downloads. Um, they're at the point now where their business model is they travel around and sell out like small theaters and put on like live portions of this thing. Um, but theirs is all done through its community radio, so you're you're listening to the local like community public radio uh, news broadcast, and that's how you find out about these weird things that go on in the town. And there's obviously recurring characters and stuff. Um, Alice isn't dead is all done by um, oh god, Rob, Rob, what's her name? Jessica. Uh, just uh, what's her last name? Nicole or something like that? Nicole. Yeah, yeah. I think it's Jessica, Jessica Nicole. Jessica Nicole. And she is on. Um, she is uh, driving a truck kind of cross country, like, like a, like she's gotten a job driving an 18 wheeler, but she's looking for her um, wife who has gone missing and she encounters some very strange things. Um, but riveting, at, at least for me. Um, so, but my, my thought was this, you can have all the production in the world. If you don't have a story that draws somebody in, my girlfriend listens to a lot of audiobooks, And you know, when I ask her about one, the first thing she talks about is the quality of the person reading it. Yeah. Before she tells me the story, she'll be like, oh, I'm really enjoying this one. The lady that's reading it is great. Yeah. <laughs> so before yeah. she tells me anything about how great the story is, she addresses the 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 speaker, I guess, the reader, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, A, having a good story and then B, having um, ha having someone that's enjoyable to listen to probably yeah. outweighs the high production David Schwimmer model of of, you know, a <laughs> podcast. But I'm starting to realize, so like, yeah, I mean, this was literally like garage band type engineering, like when we were doing it and we were doing it to just get it out there. Um, and now, you know, audiobook production is such a bigger thing. So from my point of view, it's like, do I pay someone to do it and pay them like $200 per finished hour? Or, you know, what do I decide to do with that? Um, I'm sort of testing the waters of seeing what happens if I put out my audiobooks with my own stuff. Um, and it definitely seems like, you know, doing stuff where I'm a male 
uh, voicing male characters or a male narrator, uh, that's going to work better than if I'm doing stuff with a female character or a female main main point of view. There's probably a little bit of truth to that. Or a lot of truth with you. Yeah, that's that I will say. And, and I, I'm not a huge consumer of audiobooks. But um, it's like once the Harry Potter audiobooks broke, it was a big, you know, this guy is doing a million voices and he's really good at that. And, you know, I'm sort of very middle of the road, not great at that. But I kind of come from more of the tradition of like, you know, bookstore readings where you go to a reading and to see the author. Yeah. And so I'm focusing more on the cadence of the language. I'm not trying to I'm not an actor. I'm not trying to do all these fancy accents or like make my voice sound like 20 different characters or at least I'm not trying to do it very well. Uh, <laughs> but maybe that's the other direction where some of these things are headed. I mean one of the interesting things too when I did my second Jack Palms book as a podcast, I had a lot of the listeners from the first book wanting to do voices. So I mixed in probably like 10 different other people who I would send them their lines. They would email me the files, and then I would mix that in. So I'm like re yeah. remixing that book now to put it on Audible, and it's like it's probably got at least 10 readers on it. That has to be a nightmare to edit. <laughs> well, now it's not so bad. Now I just have to pick out where the chapter breaks are. And I'm sending it to a guy who's doing the engineering on it. Um, so it can get a lot better sounding. But I think the audience really likes that if you can have, like, these different characters. And then there's this whole concept now of full cast audio book productions. That's a whole different thing. Wow, yeah. That seems yeah. pretty involved. The thing that's changed, too, and I guess the difference between audio books and, and you know, serialized podcasts is at least the trend in serialized podcast is is to to tell a story from a, a narrative stance of reporting on something. So it, it lends itself to a different type of of listening, I guess. So your standard that's audio more of a journalistic model, right? Right. Yeah, and it seems like half the ones I've tried are exactly that. Yeah, and I, I think yeah, I think there are some that aren't, but it seems like and and I don't know. I mean, that lends itself to be easier. I think. Because um, well, then you could have like, additional actors and stuff. But then they're just kind of following the serial model. Serial mm -hmm. the sure. podcast. Right, podcast. Right. But serialized fiction goes all the way back to Dickens and probably before that. And it's just, you know, you would just write a book and break it mm -hmm. in yep. certain places and send it out to people, you know, through text. And so, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me to do the audio version of that. Um as a podcast on Patreon, and that's what I've been doing for a while. Um, but the transition, but the thing about podcasting is that back in those days, there was no way to monetize it. So even the people with hugely successful podcasts about other things, you know, there was one called Ask a Ninja, there was Grammar Girl, and the way that these podcasts would get monetized was for those people to try to publish a book. And you guys yeah. know enough about book marketing to know how that works out. <laughs> that story leads so like yeah i mean that's the big question i think with gimlet and some of these other ones that you guys are mentioning like where's the money coming from in all of this like certainly yeah. surely the ads for ibooks that they mention at the beginning and the end aren't going to pay for this whole huge cast and production so in three years from now when the startup money dries out on this where are these companies going to be like what 
how are these podcasts supposed to actually make money? I don't know how many Casper mattresses you have to sell to <laughs> to to pay the staff, right? Because that's it's Casper mattress. It's um the web hosting, not GoDaddy, the other one that's advertised constantly during all the podcasts, and then Audible, right? So you sell advertising, know. yeah. But like, um, well, the, I guess the the most successful model that I could look at is going back to Welcome to Nightville. They took their podcast, which was in, they, it would come out every other week, and um, like Livia said, they do live appearances. So they they they're right. they're generating revenue from that, but they've also got book deals too. So like, they kind of went the opposite route of you, which is they turned their podcast into a book. Um, a series of books now. I think this is, they've got their fourth book out. Um, and uh, but I mean, it's just because by word of mouth they became a wildly popular podcast with like millions of subscribers, and that just kind of that size of a of a fan base allowed them to kind of do that live tours and book deals and things like that. But right, I, I mean, mean that's it's like a the- unicorn podcast right there. But that's like the music. Well, so is that one that got turned into a TV show by Amazon. The the dude. Yeah, he does all of the. Um, I, I know what you're talking about. The myths yeah. thing. Yeah. Yep. But um, yeah, I mean, so then those guys are just using sort of the music industry thing. Like once the money in the music industry dried up, and the Roots or all these other bands can't make any money by selling their albums or selling their MP3s, then they have to make their money by going on tour. Yep. So for Night Vale, that works, but shit, man, if you try to do a reading tour and get people to come out to the bookstore for a free reading with free coffee or beer or whatever, nobody comes. And if you tried to actually sell tickets for that thing... Oh, yeah, it would never oh, happen. Yeah. Yeah. Shoot um, yourself in the head. Rob, I'm assuming you didn't know this, but Welcome to Night Vale has also been optioned to be on FX as of a TV show. Of course it did. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I, was I wasn't aware of that. It, that the, yeah, the book It Devours was the last I heard about their kind of branching out. Well, just what you said, I was thinking, like, well, that's obviously the next step. Yeah, but that's happening a lot now. Like, TV studios and, and movie studios are looking to successful podcasts for story ideas to turn into TV and movies. They're definitely mining. We, we were talking about this There's before so many we started recording. There's creating content now. Amazon... Netflix, Hulu, all yep. the other sources, uh, you know, that they're just looking for places to get new stuff. Nobody's calling on me. If anyone's listening and they want some stuff, they can come to me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of content mining going on. Yep. If just sure. Jeff Bezos wants to do the true life story of the book podcast, we're we're down. Yeah. Damn. Um, yeah. So I'll play far, myself. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm even okay with that. If not, you know, I'm sure there's, you know, I'm sure Brad Pitt or something is available. I don't know. Well, you don't think Rob, you don't think Ob Rolson is going to be available for that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope not. I hope there not. might be a future episode of Booked where he makes an appearance. Yeah, we'll that's, see. That's, there's a good, there's a good teaser. What else do you guys want to talk about? <laughs> We're probably getting ready to to move into wrapping this up. I'm thinking, right? Well, can I just put a plug for myself to come on and play Ob Rolson on a later episode? <laughs> <laughs> Auditions yeah. will be held. Yeah. <laughs> date to <That's>... follow. <laughs> well, you definitely have the the podcasting chops. That There's no question about that. 
Did you notice when he started talking about his pod, he just went into complete podcaster mode, yeah, like he's totally. like regular guy mode, and then he started talking about <laughs> it. You could just tell like it was lifted right out yeah. of right out of one of his Patreon podcasts. Yeah, he knows what information yep. the, yeah. the listener doesn't yep. know yet Absolutely. that he has to provide. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. A professional right there, man. Well, you guys were funny when I did that reading in Chicago. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. You're like, that was a good take. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that yeah, like it was obvious that you you knew how to how to read and you knew how to leave like clean cuts for things like that you had an editing mind when you were when you were reading up there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but the thing is like so I came to all of this from the background of having a long car commute and listening to books on CD in my car. Uh and also really being a fan of like live readings of authors. You know, you go out um, people are reading short stories or you go for someone's novel release and they're reading an excerpt of it. So I really wanted to bring something like that to it. Um, you know, I sort of got pulled into the performative aspect of it with doing a few voices and here and there, but you know, now I'm looking at the audiobook world and seeing like, you know, these paid actors and now you've got paid actors like fucking, how the hell do you get David Schwimmer, Oscar Isaac, who's the dude who plays Poe, Makalak from Star Wars and <laughs> Catherine Keener, you know, how are you, how do you have a podcast where you have the guy from friends taking, you have a budget to pay for the guy from friends, a major Hollywood actor and Catherine Keener, who was in 40 year old virgin. Um, how do you have the budget to pay for them to do a podcast? I don't get it. But anyway, so if my meager chops are up against those, obviously, my, uh, you know, it's a big difference. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think I have to imagine that that the way they're getting paid is probably through a percentage of whatever they can option that for. I have to imagine it gets pitched something like that. Like, I don't think they're getting like you know twenty thousand dollars to record an episode. I imagine that's a lot of back end, um, maybe money coming their way. I don't know. Or they, or they have legit. I don't know what's been going on with David Schwimmer's career lately, uh, but I would imagine you got to have some pretty legit money to get him to walk in the door. Dude was on Friends, <laughs> which a uh, yeah. startling number of people still watch on Netflix. Apparently, yeah. all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> just, just yeah. I'm shocked how many people tell me like they're like in Friends season six right now. I'm like that show's been over for like a dozen years. Weird. It could and isn't be, it on yeah. TV all the time? I mean, what happened? You know what? I was, all right, here's a totally random thing. But when I was growing up, and probably you guys too, like there was a sweet spot of super weird television. Like whenever this was in like the 70s or the 80s, there was just like this amount of crappy slash mediocre uh, 30 minute TV shows that had been finished and could be syndicated that TV stations across the country. Like, what's the point of, like, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you could probably see uh -oh. where I'm going. It's only a hop, skip, and a jump from that to Three's Company. And how do you end up as a kid watching, like, every episode of Three's Company? Who's the boss? It's because uh, it was the only weird. thing on. <laughs> I know, but that was, like, such a weird. Uh, anachronism of society and culture at that point that you're never going to have again. Like now you have Netflix, you could watch anything 
it's not like seven o'clock. Oh, I could watch The Simpsons or the news. So recently, I had this conversation about the Lone Ranger and the Cisco Kid, which was on when I was a kid. I think it was Sunday mornings. There were no cartoons on. We had literally yeah. five stations yeah. to choose from. Four of them were running like Face the Nation or whatever, like a political yeah. program. In my and, life, the answer. In my life, the show there was Davy and Goliath, which was like yeah. some weird claymation, semi-religious garbage. Yeah. And the thing was, I hated the Cisco Kid. But it was the only thing on that wasn't like guys talking about politics. So I watched it. I I watched it in in eager anticipation of The Lone Ranger, which I really enjoyed (laughs) as a kid. But that's the same thing. I always watch Three's Company because if you were it was after dinner, right? Like you did your homework or whatever. And that was it. Like that's what you could watch before like seven o'clock was reruns of Three's Company, Laverne and Shirley, um, What's Happening. I mean, there was just a slew of these shows. And I don't know how much I would enjoy enjoy them today but as a kid that was it there was it was i didn't understand half the jokes they were they were above my age level right they were somewhat inappropriate for us and yet it was just like here's this stuff that we're gonna put on and as kids it's like literally there's like these are the least objectionable options and so you watch it and it's like you know anyway Weird, and I don't think these decisions were highly thought through when they thought, well, you know, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of kids watching Jack Tripper every night. Is that a good decision? Mm, I don't know. How often is Larry going to take Greedy Gretchen to the Regal Beagle? Oh, God, I love all of that. Like, Larry is, is my spirit animal. That's, that's, I, I grew up and I wanted to be Larry when I grew up. So I, um, I get it. Now I watch a lot of Paw Patrol. So. Damn. There you go. You guys, if, if I'm very quiet, it's because I have absolutely no clue what you're talking about. See, Rob, Rob's a little <laughs> younger than me, so Rob probably yeah. had cable when he was a kid, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he was probably watching... But even like, if you have cable, you probably watched a <laughs> shitload of, like, 7 p.m. episodes of The Simpsons, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You've probably watched more Simpsons than anything else in your whole life. No, no. I gave up on The Simpsons probably like 10 seasons in. I'm not talking about like Sunday Night Simpsons. I'm talking about, well... Like rerun syndication kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I don't really remember back to that too much, but TV wasn't my thing. I was reading. I was reading books. Damn. Yeah. I was reading... And, and Good for you. It's fitting, the podcast that I ended up on. I guess. <laughs> and now he hosts a podcast where he reads books and he watches more TV than he reads books. Then I read books. I don't, yeah. I don't even know what's yeah. happening anymore. So, <laughs> Anything else you guys want to touch on before we wrap this up? I want to touch on my knee, my ankle. I'm touching my knee. Beth Harwood, everybody. Um, He'll be here all <laughs> so, week. Um, do you want to plug your you, your Lit Reactor class? Is, there st- is it still open for registration or is it closing sometime soon? When does your thing start? The Sunday. Ep- yeah. It's possible that if people get this on Sunday and race to litreactor.com, uh, they could get in on my class, which starts, I think, on Tuesday, uh, January 23rd. It starts on January 23rd. People could get in there. They could go to my website, sethharwood.com. And listen to the first free episodes of the Maltese Jordans there and on my Patreon page. And uh, on the last Friday of each month at 3 p.m. Eastern, I'm doing a free office hour video 
where I talk about fiction with some of my students from Harvard and Stanford and other places. And we just sort of talk about uh, I answer questions and talk about the craft of fiction. I've been putting recordings of those up on my website and on my Patreon. If you want to check those out, hear me talk about uh, the inner workings of fiction, point of view, narrative distance, scene transitions, all that good stuff. Excellent. Um, thanks again for joining us. You know what? I... Um... I really enjoyed this format, and and I, and I asked Rob to chime in too because this was a lot less structured than than our typical interviews, and and I'm glad that this was all Seth's idea. So I want to thank Seth for having this great <laughs> idea. To be honest, um, I really enjoyed it. I think we're going to be doing a, a, a lot more of this. What do you think, Rob? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that like one thing that gets in the way of like a good feel on an interview is like is the fact that someone knows they're being interviewed. That like 100% screws them up every time. And like our conversations with people before and after an interview are so much more real than when we're actually asking questions and getting answers. So maybe we do just kind of like throttle back a little bit and say, hey, you want to come on and have a discussion? Seth, you should do all your interviews like this. Yeah. Anytime anytime you're interviewed, just go on. First thing you talk about is that cover for G.I. Joe. I loved it. Yeah, that was good. And then you trashed my bio. I, I we trash like everyone's have... bio. Yeah. That's, so. yeah. Except Frank Bill. Frank Bill got a pass. Except for Frank Bill, yeah. Yeah. You got a high yeah, five, I think, would... out of it. It's because I think you guys know that he would beat you up. Oh, there's no question he would beat us up. Right? And yeah, he's no close joke. enough to drive there and do it. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to me. But yeah, so um, I don't. I don't know if you've you've heard like the guy runs like crazy marathons. He would just like I, heard, put on I his, listened to his, your whole freaking interview. His sneakers. I'm gonna I'm gonna work this into my my everyday <laughs> lingo now. Probably and, what uh, he has are running shoes. Completely. <laughs> 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 I would hope so. But you can also um, call them sneakers. I don't even but, know what's happening right now. Well, I just want to say I I do think it would be a lot of fun to come on and talk Faulkner or something like that. Something really nerdy. See, but you're giving us homework. Yeah, we'd have to read Faulkner. (laughs) Yeah, but I could give you a Faulkner assignment that's like 60 or 20 pages. Oh, yeah, I can handle that. Sure you can. (laughs) Rob's Rob's like, what, 60 pages, and I could say we read another book? Yeah, (laughs) cha-ching. It'd be great to talk about a short story from Faulkner. I want to do that. Let's do it. Could I invite you guys to come on my podcast to talk about a Faulkner story? Yeah, totally. Yeah. For sure. And you'll read it. For sure. Yeah. If you so keep it under fun. 70 pages, Rob will read it. I'll read whatever. I don't care. All right. I'm going to have you guys on the booked guys, Faulkner, to come to my Patreon, and we'll talk about it. That'll yeah, be fun. Yeah. All right. Totally. Cool. Good. All right. All right. Seth, thanks for thanks for joining us tonight. It's it's really been a blast. And uh, and and and. Like I said, thanks for for like reaching out. So we 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 tell people, hey, like you want to do something, just reach out to us, and you did, and it's been it's been a blast. So thank you, thank you again for providing us with an an evening with Seth Harwood. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. It's been a blast. I enjoyed it. Really a thrill. Uh, and listeners, before we go, we have one more housekeeping matter. Rob, would you like to take take care of this other this other thing? Yeah, uh, we haven't talked about them much lately, but that doesn't mean we don't love them. We want to send a quick happy birthday, happy fifth anniversary 
to the This Is Horror podcast with um, hosts Michael Wilson, Michael David. I mean, he's all pretentious, and he's Michael David Wilson now, and uh, <laughs> Bob Pastorella. But yeah, we love you guys, and happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, guys. Uh, I, I hope that we get at least five more years out of, out of This Is Horror. <laughs> uh, next week, The Woman in the Window. We are jumping on that bandwagon, um, and we're going to review what I believe is maybe the number one book on Amazon right now. I know it's near the top of the list if it's not all the way at the top. Uh, did you get a chance to, to dig into this one yet, Rob? Only the first like 20 pages or so, so I'm still in the in the very beginnings of it. Um, I yeah I'm I'm not much farther ahead I think 11 percent or something when I left off but uh, so far so good I like the premise so we'll be talking about that next week and then the following week um, get your eyebrows done do what you got to do we're gonna have a video another video episode right so a holiday episode for Valentine's Day wait do I have to get my eyebrows done um, I was actually telling listeners, but I guess it doesn't matter if they're on the other end, right? What they look like. Uh, what I was trying to say is pretty yourselves up. We're going to provide you with some loving for Valentine's Day um, video episode on YouTube. You'll be able to hear the audio here, but that means, you know, you'll get to miss out on all the great visuals. <laughs> so I was just, he just keeps laughing in the background. Um, uh, yep. Uh, if you want to play along, we're going to give you a, a couple of weeks to to do exactly that. We will be watching in its entirety the uh, new Netflix original uh, end of the, the the end of the fucking world. I believe is the yeah. title, right? The end of the fucking world, um, which appears to be a love story. So um, we're going to review that, and uh, and I'm sure there will be other fun and uh, and yeah, I guess shenanigans. I, I don't know, something like that. Try some drinking. There will likely be some drinking, too, So, because how else can you become uh, all romantic like we're going to do on our uh, Valentine's Day episode unless you're drunk? Livius is going to break out that special bottle of chocolate wine. I have a bottle of chocolate wine set aside specific <laughs> for that episode. <laughs> and every other holiday episode we might do this year. I have like seven bottles. So Excellent. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this uh, this episode. Join us next week for a book and then come back for some lovin'. Until then, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Olivia Snudden. Keep reading. <laughs>